Dear friend, it's true. If there's even the slightest possibility that you'll have to use your gun someday for self-defense, then this is going to be the most important letter you've ever read. I'm not kidding. So please, do yourself a favor. Go to someplace quiet, close the door, and tell everyone not to disturb you for the next five or ten minutes. Done? Good. I'm only asking that you do this because I want you to carefully absorb and consider what I'm about to share with you. Really could save your life someday. Well, this is an open letter from this issue of American Handgunner magazine. It's actually uh, written by Ben Cooley, who's described as somebody with 13 years of experience in counterterrorism, hostage rescue, and SWAT training. It is a four-page, single-spaced letter with lots of things underlined and bolded everywhere. Actually, a four-page ad. Let me see. His thesis basically is that you have to have the fighting mindset. Naturally, you have to have a gun. But in addition to a gun, more important than the gun, is what is going on in your head. I'll just read you a, a little bit here. Hollywood will get you killed. Tragically, almost everyone alive today learns their so-called fighting skills from what they see on TV and in the movies. I say tragically because everything you see on TV and film is absolutely the opposite of what you should do in a real-life armed confrontation. And yes, I know it's almost heresy to say it, but even Dirty Harry would get his head blown off if he tried these stunts in real life. I've been reading gun magazines, and more than anything I've read in any of the issues of any of the gun magazines, this ad completely gets to me. And I've been trying to think about why, and I think the reasons are these. Number one, its central attitude, its central thesis is, everything you know is wrong. Number two, it says Hollywood is trouble. Number three, it tells you that gadgets and fancy stuff cannot help you. What will help you, the only thing that can help you, is the right attitude. And number four, it says that all I need to do is buy a video for $97, and a gun, of course, but mainly a video, and I'm set. I read this, and I have to say... I want more. I want this. Which is not an easy thing to achieve with an ad. Because the gap between gun owners and people who don't own guns, like myself, that is a vast gap in our country. It's two different cultures. But this ad, I don't know what, it's something about it's everything you know is wrong, can do, badassery. I get this ad. This ad bridges the gap. And that is also the mission of today's radio program. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, we try to bridge the gap between Americans who love their guns and Americans who hate them. Act one of our program, NRA meets NEA. Our own Sarah Val goes out shooting with her dad and a gun that weighs 110 pounds. Back two, fists and guns. A gun control advocate, Jeffrey Canada, explains the pleasure and power of carrying a gun. Back three, shooter. How somebody goes from victim to perp in one day. Back four, potato, potato. What it's like getting shot at. We hear from two people who drew completely opposite conclusions from the experience. Act 5, straw man. We'll talk with a man who has put five dozen illegal guns into the hands of criminals for less money than you made this year. Stay with us. (laughs) 
Mequon, NRA versus NEA. Sarah Val says that growing up in Oklahoma and Montana, she did not agree with her father about guns. And then one day, back when she was mostly a music critic, running for spin and all sorts of places like that, she tried to cross the cultural chasm that divides the gun haters from the gun lovers in this country. If you were passing by the house where I grew up during my teenage years and it happened to be before Election Day, you wouldn't have even needed to come inside to see that it was a house divided. You could just look at the Democratic campaign poster in the upstairs window and the Republican one in the downstairs window and see our home for the Civil War battleground it was. I'm not saying who was the Democrat and who was the Republican, my father or I, but I will tell you that I am not the one who plastered the family truck with National Rifle Association stickers, that I have never subscribed to guns and ammo, and that Hunter's Orange was never my color. About the only thing my father and I agree on is the Constitution, though I'm partial to the First Amendment while he's always favored the Second. I am a gunsmith's daughter. In our house, or as I like to call it, the United States of Firearms, guns were everywhere. The so-called pretty ones hanging on the wall, dad's clients fixer-uppers leaning into corners, an entire rack right next to the TV. I had to move revolvers out of my way to make room for my bowl of Rice Krispies on the kitchen table. Now I even giggle when Dad calls me on Election Day to cheerfully inform me that he has once again canceled out my vote. But I was not always so mature. There were times when I found the fact that he was a gunsmith horrifying and just weird. All he ever cared about was guns. All I ever cared about was art. And there were years and years when I holed up in my room reading Allen Ginsberg poems and he hid out in the garage making rifle barrels and we weren't capable of having a conversation that didn't end up in argument. I have only shot a gun once and once was plenty. My twin sister Amy and I were six years old, six, when Dad decided it was high time that we should know how to shoot. Amy remembers the day he handed us the gun for the first time differently. She liked it. She says that she thought it meant that Daddy trusted us and that he thought of us as big girls. But I remember holding the pistol only made me feel small. It was so heavy in my hand. I stretched out my arm and pointed it away and winced. It was a very long time before I had the nerve to pull the trigger and I was so scared I had to close my eyes. It felt like it just went off by itself, as if I had no say in the matter, as if the gun just had this need. The sound it made was as big as God. It kicked little me back to the ground, like a bully, like a foe. It hurt. I don't know if I dropped it or just handed it back over to my dad, but I do remember that I never wanted to touch another one again. And, since I believed in the devil, I did what my mother told me to do every time I felt an evil presence. I whispered under my breath, Satan, I rebuke thee. Now, it's not like I'm saying I was traumatized. It was more like I was decided. Guns, not for me. Lucky for me, both my parents grew up in exasperating households where children were considered puppets and or slaves. So my mom and dad were hell-bent on letting my sister and me make our own choices. 
So if I decided that I didn't want my father's little death sticks to kick me to the ground again, that was fine with him. He'd go hunting with my sister, who started calling herself the loneliest twin in history because of my reluctance to engage in family activities. Of course, the fact that I was allowed to voice my opinions did not mean that my father would silence his own. Some things were said during the Reagan administration that cannot be taken back. I won't bore you with the details. Let's just say that I blamed my father for nuclear proliferation and contra aid, while he believed that if I had my way, all the guns would be confiscated and it would take the commies about 15 minutes to parachute in and assume control. We're older now, my dad and I, and the older I get, the more I'm interested in becoming a better daughter. First on my list, figure out that whole gun thing. Not long ago, my dad finished his most elaborate tool of death yet—a cannon. He built a 19th-century cannon from scratch. It took two years. After tooling a million guns, after inventing and building a rifle barrel boring machine, after setting up a complicated shop filled with lathes and bluing tanks and outmoded blacksmithing tools, the cannon is his most ambitious project ever. I thought that if I was ever going to understand the ballistic bee in his bonnet, this was my chance. It was the biggest gun he ever made, and I could experience it and spend time with it, with the added bonus of not having to actually pull a trigger myself. I called Dad and said that I wanted to come watch him shoot off the cannon. He was immediately suspicious. He seemed nervous when I told him I wanted to record it, but I had never taken an interest in his work before, and he would take what he could get. I flew home to Montana. He loaded it into the back of his truck, and we drove up into the Bridger Mountains. And the National Forest Service doesn't mind you、um, setting off fiery balls of metal onto their property.、Uh, you cannot shoot. Fireworks, but this is considered a firearms. <laughs> so that's okay. <laughs> I should mention that it is a small cannon. It's as long as a baseball bat and as wide as a coffee can, though it's heavy—110 pounds. We get to the mountain. My dad takes his gunpowder and other toys out of this adorable wooden box on which he has stenciled "Pat G. Vowell Cannon Works." He plunges his homemade bullets into the barrel, points it at an embankment just to be safe, and lights the fuse. The fuse is lit. This is like a cartoon. Oh my God! Oh, there's smoke everywhere. It's like the Fourth of July. <laughs> oh, beautiful forestfire! I've given this a lot of thought: how to convey the giddiness I felt as the cannon shot off. And I wish there were a more articulate way to say this, but I'm telling you, there isn't. It's just really, really cool. My dad thought so too. It's also loud, louder than I can possibly convey over the radio. No, let me amend that. If you want to understand how loud it was, in a moment, not yet, but when I say, turn the volume on your radio all the way up. Ready? Now. God. It was so loud and so painful. I had to touch my head to make sure my skull hadn't cracked open. 
Here's something my dad and I share. We're both a little hard of hearing. Me from Aerosmith, him from Gunsmith. Hey, turn it up again. Man! Good shot, Dad. Just as I was wondering what was coming over me, two hikers walked by. We forced them to politely laugh at our jokes for a while, and Dad set the cannon off again so they could see how it works. So you work for the radio, and that's your dad? Yeah. That's neat. <laughs> then this odd thing happens. When one of the hikers says, That's quite the machine you got there. He isn't talking about the cannon. He's talking about my tape recorder and my long radio microphone. I stare back at him, then I look over at my father's cannon and down at my microphone, and I think, oh my god. My dad and I are the same person. We're both smart-alecky loners with goofy projects and weird equipment. And since this whole target practice outing was my idea, I was no longer his adversary. I was his accomplice. And what's worse, I was liking it. I haven't changed my mind about guns. I can get behind the cannon because it is a completely ceremonial object. It's unwieldy and impractical just like everything else I care about in the world. Try to rob a convenience store with this 110 pound Saturday night special, you'll still be dragging it in the door Sunday afternoon. I love noise. I make my living writing about it. And I'm always waiting for that moment in a song when something just flies out of it and explodes in the air. My dad is a one-man garage band, the kind of rock and roller who slaves away at his art for no other reason than to make his own sound. My dad's an artist, a pretty driven idiosyncratic one, too. And he's got his last Gesamtkunstwerk all planned out. It's a performance piece. We're all in it. My mom, the loneliest twin in history, and me. Here's how it goes. When my father dies, take a wild guess what he wants done with his ashes. Here's a hint. It requires a cannon. You guys are going to love this. You get to drag this thing up on top of the gravelies on opening day of hunting season. <laughs> and looking off at Spinks Mountain, you get to put me in little paper bags and I can <laughs> take my last hunting trip on opening morning. I'll do it, too. I don't know about my mom and my sister, but I'll do it. I'll have my father's body burned into ashes. I'll pack this ash into paper bags. The morbid joker has already made the molds. I'll go to the mountains with my mother and my sister, bringing the cannon as he asks. I will plunge his remains into the barrel and point it into a hill so he doesn't take anyone with him. I will light the fuse. But I will not cover my ears. Because when I blow what used to be my dad into the earth, I want it to hurt. Me, Father Death, I'm flying home. Hey, poor man, you're all alone. Hey, old daddy, I know where I'm going. Father Death, don't cry anymore. Mama's there underneath the floor. Brother Death, please mind the sore. Old Act 2. Fists and Guns. Drive-by shootings and tragic assaults where one teenager shoots another for a jacket or a pair of Nikes are such old news. 
that we forget how we got to this point. Jeffrey Canada grew up in a tough neighborhood of the South Bronx before guns were a commonplace in teenage culture there. He's also been a gun owner himself. We wanted to talk to him about that, but first, a few words about the days before guns. I'll tell you, it was an absolute shock for me and my brothers when we moved from a relatively quiet area of the South Bronx to what to us looked like a children's paradise with children playing in the streets and games. And we we moved on the front floor, uh, on the third floor in the front of the building. And I remember my brothers and I, we were waving at the little boys and girls from our window waiting to go downstairs and make some friends. And one of the boys, they, they looked up and he pointed his finger at me, took his fist, balled it into a fist and rubbed it in his eye and pointed back at me. And I remember looking at my brothers and saying, you know, I, I think that boy wants to beat us up. And we were stunned. We were like, for what? Why, why would they want to fight us? Uh, and, you know, we went to our mother and we, we told her, Ma, you know, I think the boys want to beat us up downstairs. And you know how mothers are. She was like, oh, don't be foolish. You don't even know those boys. Why would they want to beat you up? You know, just go down there and play. You can't. And we realized, you know, we were literally on our own with this. Uh, and it was from that initial introduction, each one of us had to go downstairs, have a fight before we were accepted on the block. And when I look back on it, it was like you had to see where you fit in into a hierarchy in terms of, of being able to fight. And once that was established, you were pretty much okay on the block. One of, one of the things that you write about is that you say that the older boys in the block, when you grew up, would set the younger boys fighting. That's correct. And, you know, it seemed awfully cruel to me when before I knew sort of the, the what I call the codes of violence that existed a, at that time, that we would just be sitting around and the older boys would just really set us up to fight one another. They would just simply start, you know, and uh, Rodney, can you beat Jeff? And, and Rodney would say, I don't know. And he said, well, are you scared of him? And he says, I'm not scared of him. And they say, well, Jeff, you scared of him? And he's like, I'm not. And you were just trapped. And I would be sitting there thinking, why are they doing this? Right, me and Rodney, we were just friends, and the next thing you know, we'd be having a, a fist fight. Uh, later, I found out that the older boys really felt it was their responsibility to teach us how to fight, because if we didn't learn it on Union Avenue, which was the block I grew up on, on in the South Bronx, then the other kids from Home Street and Prospect Avenue, 167th Street, they would take advantage of us. But this was really largely fist fighting between kids that had rules around them. You know, in, in my neighborhood... There was no wrestling allowed in, in a fight. And the kids would break it up if you started to wrestle. They'd be like, no, no, that's not fair. No, I have no idea why. In other places, it was totally all right. But we really believed in these rules. Mm -hmm. And in the end, uh, the worst that would happen was maybe a kid would get a bloody nose, but no real uh, long-lasting damage to you. Uh, explain, what the other, explain what the other rules were. What, what were other parts of the code of conduct? Well, you had to, when I was growing up, you had to fight somebody on size. I mean, that, that there was a real thing that, that people would say, you know, you couldn't pick on somebody smaller than you. And people really reinforced this. And they would say, you know, why are you bothering him? Oh, he's not your size. You pick on me. I'm your size. And, and people really believed that. Uh, you couldn't fight girls. Uh, and these were pretty well understood by the other members of, of our youth community. One of the things about this whole system is that is that you could have a fight and you could lose and you could still uh, ha maintain face. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there was no real shame in losing a fight if you fought well and courageously and someone was just more skilled than you. Indeed, once that was established, you could accept the fact that someone could beat you and people would just ask, can you beat Tommy? And I'd be like, no. And it was no it was no big deal. They just say, OK, Tommy's more skilled. But it didn't mean that under certain conditions I wouldn't fight Tommy. 
And, and, so, and so there were checks on violence. The, the, they really were. And typically, there were not uh, what I would consider to be a lot of random fights. Uh, every now and then, there'd be some fight between two guys who were trying to work something out. But basically, everybody learned where they were in a pecking order, and we established some levels of comfort with one another. Now, with more guns on the street, what has happened to that system of checks? Well, you know, it's, it's really uh, changed dramatically. Uh, one of the things that happens when, when you have a handgun uh, is that you don't have to think about the consequences of your behavior that leads you into a confrontation. And what I mean by that is that we actually had to think when we said something back. If we were walking down a block and somebody said something to us and they were bigger than us, we had to think, geez, if I say something to this guy, am I really prepared to go fight him? And often the case was, no, I don't think so, so I'm going to pretend I didn't hear it. Uh, with the handgun, you can really say, well, I don't care how big somebody is, no one's going to say that to me. And when someone does, you stop. And you say, you know, who are you talking to? And you're prepared to take it to the next level. In your book, Fistic Knife Gun, there comes a point where, it, where you talk about uh, when you got a handgun yourself. Let me ask you to read um, 101 on your book. Terrific. I'm, I'm going to read uh, Chapter 14, part of it. In 1971, well before the explosion of handguns on the streets of New York City, I brought a handgun. I brought the gun legally in Maine, where I was in college. The clerk only wanted to see some proof of residency, and my Bowdoin College ID card was sufficient. The gun was exactly what I needed. It was so small I could slip it into my coat pocket or pants pocket. I needed the gun because we had moved from Union Avenue to 183rd Street in the Bronx, but I still traveled back to Union Avenue during the holidays when I was home from school. The trip involved walking through some increasingly dangerous territory. New York City was going through one of its gang phases and several new ones had sprung up in the Bronx. One of the gangs liked to hang out right down the block from where we now lived on 183rd Street and Park Avenue. When I first went away to school, I paid no mind to the large group of kids that I used to pass on my way to the store or to the bus stop back to the Bronx. The kids were young, 14 or 15 years old. At 19, I was hardly worried about a bunch of street kids who thought they were tough. But over the course of the next year, the kids got bolder and more vicious. On several occasions, I watched with alarm as swarms of teenagers pummeled adults who had crossed them in one way or another. Everyone knew they were a force to be reckoned with, and many a man and woman crossed the street or walked around the block to keep from having to walk past them. And I crossed the street also, and there were times that I went out of my way to go to another store rather than walk past a rowdy group of boys who seemed to own the block. On more than one occasion, I rounded a corner only to come face to face with the gang. I could feel their eyes on me as I looked straight ahead, hoping none of them would pick a fight. After having survived growing up in the Bronx, here I was scared to go home and walk down my own block. The solution was simple. I had a gun. I had a gun and an attitude. When I looked back on the power the gun had over my personality and my judgment, I am amazed. It didn't happen all at once. The change was subtle. At first, I continued to avoid the gang of teenagers. I crossed the street or turned down another block when I saw them. But slowly as I carried the gun with me day after day, my attitude began to change. I began to think, why should I have to walk an extra block? Why should I feel that I have to cross the street or look down when I pass those kids? 
By the end of two weeks, I had convinced myself that all of the habits I had cultivated to avoid conflict with the gang were unnecessarily conciliatory. My behavior when I went outside began to change. I stopped going out of my way or crossing the street or avoiding eye contact when I passed the gang. In fact, I began to do the opposite. I would choose to go to the grocery store on the side of the street where the gang was gathered. I would walk through them head up, eyes challenging, hand in my coat pocket, finger on the trigger. I was prepared to shoot to kill to defend myself. My rationale was that I was minding my own business, not bothering anyone. But I wasn't going to take any stuff from anyone. If they decided to jump me, well, they would get what they deserved. I was lucky that winter break. Time quickly came for me to go back to college, and no member of the gang had felt the need to challenge this strange young man with fire in his eyes and his hand always in his coat pocket. I knew if I continued to carry the gun in the Bronx, it would simply be a matter of time before I was forced to use it. My behavior would become more and more reckless each day. I unloaded the gun, wrapped it in a newspaper, took it to the town dump, and threw it away. Jeffrey Canada, reading from his book Fist, Stick, Knife, Gone. Jeffrey Canada says that the kind of fistfights that he grew up with ended in the Bronx in the 1970s. At one point in his book, he's told that one reason for the increase of handguns in the hands of teenagers is because the gun manufacturers, after saturating the market of white males, started to market guns to women and to young people. It was absolutely, uh, for me, it was a devastating discovery because I was just really mortified to find out that what I considered to be my young people accidentally sort of figuring out how to find these handguns through some hard sort of uh, uh, looking and digging around in the inner cities was actually a marketing campaign that was aimed directly at them. Uh, and they started to change the names of handguns to make them more attractive to kids. And they names started like to Viper, hand- you say in the book. Yes, you know, which, and they weren't finding these handguns. The handgun manufacturers were finding my kids. Uh, and it was not a small campaign. It was funded by millions of dollars. Can you imagine what you would have thought as a kid if when you were seven, you would know that someday, decades later, you'd be <laughs> sitting in a studio, you'd be writing a book about how much better it was back then. Yes, no, I, I would not, absolutely, I could not have imagined uh, doing that. And it's one of the things that really shocked me so much was that I remember these times as being so tough, but yet I have to agree that this is tougher. It is tougher when you're dealing with the, the fact of, of you could die uh, than when you're dealing with the fact that you could get beat up. Both are horrible for children, and I don't want to pretend that it that it's not damaging to a child emotionally to grow up fearing for their physical safety. It's just more damaging to grow up fearing that you're going to be killed. Jeffrey Canada is the author of Fist, Stick, Knife, Gun, A Personal History of Violence in America. He now runs one of the most ambitious programs in the country to help children in neighborhoods like the one he grew up in, the Harlem Children's Zone which is remaking a hundred blocks in central Harlem and is a model that the Obama administration is planning to use across the country. Coming up, what it's like getting shot and what it's like to sell guns to criminals. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. 
Today's program, guns and the people who love them. We are at Act 3 of our program, Round 3, Shooter. This next story, I think, is the quintessential gun story because it is both about the fear of guns and the desire for them, the pleasure people take in them. A Chicago playwright named Bryn Magnus told this story on stage here in Chicago. As a kid growing up in Wisconsin, Bryn Magnus was terrorized by a bully named Dennis Schultz. who used to beat him up all the time. So he would pound on me really bad, and um, you know I would take it year after year, um, and I would get pretty good at, at looking wounded, so he would stop sooner. <laughs> but anyway, one day I was with his cousin, Kurt Schultz, and Marky Wilkirka, and a couple of other guys at Kurt Schultz's house in his bedroom, and we were smoking pot and listening to Pink Floyd. And, uh, <laughs> and the door kicked open, and it was Dennis, and he had his, his father's Luger, pistol. And he turned and he said, uh, smokey, smokey. And then he shot Kurt Schultz in the head and Kurt flipped over the chair he was sitting in back like that. And we all totally freaked out. And I dove out the window. I just felt glass shattering around me. And I started running. And as I was running down the street, I heard uh, Dennis Schultz scream, get your ass back here, faggot. And I, I was like, oh, God, I've got to get away from this guy. I've got to get away. I'm running. And um, he had come out of the room after me through the window and I was running down the street and I heard a shot and I heard the bullet whistling past me and I was like you know running as fast as I could and then I um, I didn't hear the shot that hit me I just felt this sting in my back and it was kind of looked like this it spun me around and I landed and he came running up to me and he stood over me with the Luger and he said uh he said, I don't know, I don't even know what he said, actually, because I had, by this time, soiled my pants, and I was, like, really shaking, and this, this was no act, I was really frightened, and uh, he just, he shot me, like, five times in the stomach, and I, I felt, you know, each time it hit me, I felt it strike, striking me, and I looked down, and it was like wax, he had taken the bullets out of these bullets and dripped in wax over the gunpowder and put him back in this Luger and he had, you know, done this act of terrorism, <laughs> which I thought was really exceptionally creative and <laughs> instantly conscripted my next door neighbor, Chris Williams, to uh, steal his father's uh, 38 police special from his bedroom at night and we spent like hours making these bullets where we'd, we'd take the lead out of the bullet and we'd drip a little, well first we'd dump a little of the gunpowder and then we'd drip a little wax in there and then we'd put a little like ketchup or fake blood in there and then we'd drip a little more wax on top <laughs> and we had it all figured out and so then we would go out into the countryside on these country roads in Wisconsin that had these really twisty turny things and we would, we, you know, we would scope it out, we'd watch the cars go by and make sure that we, could, we had the sight lines all right and then we would enact these great scenes where you know one of us would have the gun and the other would be running or standing there like no, no. So when the, the, car, would, the car would come around the corner and hit us with light and it would be like oh like this and then boom and then ah and fall over. The car would screech to a halt and we'd get up and run away and it was really a great time. Um, and I, and uh, you know, so I um, we did one where we were standing in the road and um, I was the one who got shot. And usually what happens is the car stops like a, th- a thousand yards before he gets to you and then waits until nothing's happening and then slowly goes past. <laughs> well, this car drove right up and it was a police car. And these, uh, these cops get out and um, 
you know, they have strong flashlights, so they can see us laughing in the bushes, and they... <laughs> and they come over to us, and, um, you know, they weren't too afraid, because, um, you know, because by that time we were so afraid that um, they didn't think that we were going to do anything with this gun, but, um, you know, they said, uh, w- w- what's... What are you kids doing? <laughs> and, um... You know, we told him what we were doing. And he said, oh, yeah, let me see. So I said, uh, well, you know, okay. So, you know, I had Chris set up, you know. He, we got all set, and these cops were standing there with their flashlights on us, and Chris shoots me, and I, I fall to the ground, and like, you know, doing my thing. And uh, there's this moment of silence, and the, and the cop goes, yeah, that's pretty good. Do you guys do parties? Bryn Magnus recently finished a screenplay, not yet produced, about a morally invisible banker. Act 4. Potato, potato. Now the story of two people nearly killed in gun attacks. Two people who drew very different conclusions from their experiences. The first one we're going to hear from is Mike Robbins, a Chicago police officer, who in 1994 was shot 11 times. One bullet that ripped through his abdomen is still lodged an inch from his spine. Quick warning before we begin, some of this might not be suitable for small children. Robbins was working in the gang crimes unit for the Chicago police. He and his partner answered a call about a gang disturbance. Shots had been heard. They drove down a dark alley. Robbins was driving when somebody ran up to his side of the car. It happened so fast, we didn't get a chance to, my partner and I didn't get a chance to respond. My partner had his gun out, I had my gun out, and uh, this individual just stuck the gun in the window and began shooting, immediately began shooting. And uh, I stuck the gun into my chest repeatedly, uh, several times, point blank, uh, just stuck it into my chest and uh, fired. And he's, he's shooting you in the chest. Were you wearing a, a bulletproof vest? Yes, I was wearing a bulletproof vest. And in, 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 in effect, it, it's like um, basically someone taking a cannon and putting it in your chest and firing. That's exactly how, uh, how hard it is. Uh, it, it's like a horse maybe or an elephant kicking you in the chest very hard, very painful. Basically, uh, um, in 91... My parents and I had gone to eat at a local restaurant. Now, bright, sunny day like today, we were, certainly weren't in a dark alley somewhere where we weren't supposed to be. This is Susanna Gracia Hop, a chiropractor in Texas and a gun owner. And a crowded restaurant. It was payday, and it was the day after Boss's Day, a place that we went all the time. In fact, the manager that day had invited me. We were done eating, and um, all of a sudden this guy crashes his truck through the window. And we promptly heard uh, gunshots. And when we heard that, your first thought is robbery. It's a crowded place. It's a robbery. So we immediately dropped down. My father and I put the table up in front of us. But um, about 45 seconds into it, I'm going to say probably six people were, were killed at that point. He was not spraying bullets. He was simply walking from one person to the other, aiming and pulling the trigger. And in, in, in my case, the individual, I, uh, I could never forget his face uh, because uh, his, his face was uh, closer than yours and mine. 
And was he uh, cold and clinical about it, or was he just angry? Very much so. He was I, clinical. I, I didn't, very cold, uh, very clinical, uh, and just shooting, uh, just shooting repeatedly. My partner was shot uh, six times. Well, we screamed and hollered in the car at, at each other, and we, there was just a lot of screaming and hollering. Some of the things were, were inaudible. We're going to die. We're going to die. Help me. Uh, tell my mother I love her. Uh, I love it? you. I told him that I love you. He told me he loved me, you know. Actually, um, you would have expected it to be pandemonium, but no, it was very quiet, in fact, and, and you can ask anybody about that particular day. It was, it was oddly quiet. You'd hear an occasional an occasional scream or an occasional moan or an occasional instruction shouted, like, get down or something like that. But otherwise, um, it's just completely silent. Mm-hmm. I felt that it took forever, the shooting. It's like in slow motion. When I look back at it in retrospect, and uh, I, I see things uh, very slowly now. At this point, he was about 15 feet from us. He was about three-quarters of his back turned toward me. I had a place to rest my arm. It was a, a, a perfect opportunity. Perfect shot. And then I realized that a few months earlier, I made the stupidest decision of my life. My gun was 100 yards away in my car, completely useless to me, because I had chosen to obey Texas laws. My partner couldn't get a shot off at the guy on the side because he was, uh, as he explained to me later on, I was busy bouncing up and down in the car, uh, back and forth and up and down, that if he'd have shot, he probably would have shot me. Well, at that point, my father began to raise up and say, I've got to do something, I've got to do something, he's going to kill everybody in here. And my attention turned to him, and I started hold, grabbing him by the shirt and pulling him down. All the strength had been blown out of me, literally. Uh, I could no longer struggle or fight with this individual. But when he saw what, what he thought was an opportunity, he jumped up and ran at the guy. Well, the guy saw my dad coming. He turned, pulled the trigger, um, shot my father in the chest. And I felt that uh, this is the way I was going to die, and this is how it feels to die. These things were running through my mind as he was shooting. I stood up, and I grabbed my mother by the shirt collar, and I said, come on, come on, we've got to run, we've got to get out of here. And my feet grew wings, and I was one of the only people out of the front area there to make it out the back. Um, How many people were killed that day? 23 people. Uh-huh. And I turned around to say something to my mother and realized that she had not followed me out. Uh, one of the um, interesting things that happened was that um, I saw a vision of my mother uh, at the time when uh, we were shot. Um, and uh, my mother had passed in 1982. And um, uh, if we have time, I could tell you about it. It doesn't take uh, too long. But uh, at the time when uh, this individual was shooting uh, and shooting and shooting in uh, our car, um, I somehow mustered an, enough strength to um, turn my body to the left. And uh, when I did so, um, my uh, my mother uh, just was in the back of the car and she just grabbed me and pulled me right to her bosom and just pulled my head right into her chest. Uh, she had no clothes on at all. She just pulled me right to her bare breast hmm. and, and just pulled me close. And uh, at that time, there was um, a, another loud bang and a big uh, kick in, the, in my back. And... Uh, he had shot me in the uh, left side of my back and in, in the shoulder blade, I found out later on. And um, then my mother had released me. And at that time, the individual who was shoot doing the shooting, he took off running down the alley. 
and I later learned from the cops my mother had crawled over to where my father was and was cradling him until the gunman got back around to her and they said she put the, he put the gun to her head, she looked up at him and put her head down and he pulled the trigger. Well, just prior to the trial, as um, we were being prepped by the state's attorney's office, uh, they're asking what happened next and what happened next and what happened next, and I explained to them, and I explained to them just like I mentioned to you about my mother uh, appearing and pulling me close to her. Uh, and uh, they had advised me not to do so. Not to mention that on the not stand. Not to mention that on the stand, because I did not want to prejudice the jury or put anything into their minds, and, and perhaps uh, them thinking that uh, maybe I was uh, suffering a period of delusion, and if in doing so, then maybe I wouldn't recognize uh, this individual who shot me. Uh, so at the time, uh, I had, um, when, uh, while we were on the stand, I told the jury that uh, I saw my mother. I told them the very same thing. I didn't, uh, I didn't want to hide it at all. My reason for saying is that to deny that this happened would be to deny that uh, I saw my mother, to deny that uh, God exists. Uh, and I did not want to do that. I, I don't think that I would be able to live uh, with myself. It, it, I would have been better off dead. The individual might as well just shot me and killed me. Mike Robbins came out of the experience a firm advocate for stricter gun control. He got rid of his own guns and began speaking around the country about the issue. Susanna Grasha Hupp, meanwhile, became a visible and important spokesperson in the fight to change the gun laws in Texas to allow concealed weapons. Soon after her side won and concealed weapons became legal in Texas, she was elected as a state representative. What, what do you make of somebody who goes through something very similar to what you went through and concludes the opposite? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to chuckle. I guess I've just heard this sort of thing so many times that it does kind of floor me. Um, what I don't understand is that their logic seems to stop at the point that they think the gun is the bad guy. That that a law, somebody that you're already talking about, is willing to, to overlook the highest law of the land, which is taking somebody's life, that somebody who's willing to overlook that law will, will allow a silly little paperwork law, a gun law, to stop them from murdering somebody? If they want to kill somebody, they're not going to really worry about whether or not they can have, carry a concealed weapon. That seems insane to me. Let me ask you a question. One of the people who we're interviewing for our show is a woman who's now a state representative in Texas. Mm-hmm. And she had an incident where, um, where uh, both her parents were shot, where she was almost shot. And what she concluded from that was that she should be able to carry a gun because she could have actually shot how the can, gun. How can you conclude from one incident that everyone in the total state of Texas should have a gun? What would you say to her, though? I mean, she said that well, if she had had a gun at that time. Like, what would you want to say to well, her? Well, she, anyone can say coulda, shoulda, woulda. You know, anyone can say that. I mean, this is America. You're entitled to say whatever it is you want. You have that First Amendment privilege, freedom of speech. 
you know, thinking about it, I'm thinking like one of the one of the differences between your experience and hers is that um, when she and her parents, you know, were in this experience where where they were shot at, she didn't have her gun. Mm-hmm. But you and your partner, you both, ha- you two men, you we both, both had, had guns. guns. You both had and guns, it didn't, and it didn't protect us. Okay, a gun is not a guarantee. You know, I it it's not a guarantee. I'm not telling you it's a guarantee. There are going to be times, and and I tell you, one of the things that I dread is something happening to me, my being murdered in some, God forbids, murdered at some point, and my being found with the gun somewhere in my possession, because I know people who are anti-gun will use that for all it's worth. And I, I, that's probably one of my biggest fears. And the Not fact that you would get murdered, but that you'd get murdered and <laughs> with and have the gun, and it would be used as propaganda. Yes, yes. Right. I, I and I have to say a thousand times over, it's not a guarantee. It simply changes the odds. The guns that are used in crimes are the guns that give guns a bad name. And where do those guns come from? Well, most of us assume that they're stolen. But in fact, according to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, only 10% of the guns confiscated at crimes are stolen. Where do the rest come from? 60% are purchased legally. Tori Marlin wrote about this when she was a staff writer at the Chicago Reader. Most of them are acquired by a means called straw purchasing, and that means uh, that they are purchased by someone uh, who is legally able to buy the gun for someone who is legally unable to buy the gun. So in other words, somebody without a criminal record would go and purchase a gun for somebody who does have a criminal record. Right. And so why is this so hard to stop? Because it's it's nearly impossible to detect. It's hard to... um, it's hard to stop a straw purchase in action uh, because the only way ATF knows that somebody's been straw purchasing is if that person's guns start turning up in crimes and they're traced back to that person. For an article in the Chicago Reader, Tori Marlin interviewed a straw purchaser who bought guns for guys in his neighborhood between 1988 and 1990, and then he was caught. He served 13 months for dealing firearms without a license. She agreed to re-interview him on tape for This American Life. Well, the first time, I was, like, walking down the street, and this guy seemed to know who I was because I used to be a security officer. So he approached me and offered me $200 to buy a gun. And I thought that was quite a bit of money, you know, for for me to keep in my pocket. Were you working at the time? I mean, did you have a steady income? No, at the time, I wasn't working. So I went on and did that. I told him I wouldn't do it again. I'll just take $200 and go and buy him a gun, you know. What did you know about him? 
I knew for one thing that he dealt drugs. That's about it. That's, you know, I never known him to be a violent guy or anything like that. So I figured that it was just something that he was using for his protection, you know. The, which I had known many drug dealers that had had guns and used, you know, just for their protection. They didn't uh, go around hurting people or anything. I thought it might not be a good idea to do, but at the same time, I was broke. So I, just, I figured I wasn't going to do it again anyway, so I might as well do it this one time, get the money and go ahead on about my business. What were the reasons that you thought it, it might not be such a good idea? Well, I figured that uh, if someone did get shot with the gun, it may well have, could be traced back to me. But seeing that those guns, they don't usually try to trace them unless, you know, it was a murder. And even then, as long as they got the person that did it, they wouldn't much care where the gun came from. So tell me about uh, the day that you went to purchase the gun. Was he with you? Yes, he was with me. And we went out there and kind of like just bought the gun and came on back. You know, <laughs> it wasn't no big deal. Did uh, the guy that you were buying the gun for um, handle the gun? Did he pick out the gun? And did the gun dealer, um, to your knowledge, have any suspicion about the sale that, that he was making? Well, he did pick the gun out, but see, the, the suspicion was thrown off because he did it in such a way that uh, it was like I was buying it. I knew basically what kind he wanted, so we was looking at the guns, and I guess, you know, when uh, we saw a couple of them, he agreed, I agreed, and, you know, it was like an agreement that was, like, understood by me and him more so than a dealer. From that point on, uh, he must have spread the word around a couple of the guys in the neighborhood started approaching me. And I didn't think that was a good idea. Did you know the guys who started approaching you? Yes, I did know them. What did you know of them? That they basically were the same type of guys, you know. They dealt their little drugs uh, here and there. So I didn't uh, really think it was nothing that they was doing that was like, you know, hurting, you know, shooting people and stuff like that. They just probably wanted their protection. They wanted to just have some for protection, just like any citizen would, you know. Even though they was kind of like the underworld citizens. <laughs> so how many guns did you eventually supply to these guys? Well, as time went on over a period of two years, I believe it was something like uh, 60. It was in the area of 60 guns. And how much money would you make from the, the, the purchases? Well, as time went on, it became lesser than that $200. From, from I say, from 50 to $100. I mean, it jumped all the way down, you know. <laughs> you know, that first guy, when he came along with that deal, it was like something, I guess, to get me started or something. I don't know. Or something that, you know, I would do just because of the money. You know, it was like too much to resist, stuff like that. Thank you.
because I was saying, first of all, the money came first. And the, the respect that I was given from, from the neighborhood, guys, that, that was an, another thing, you know. It was a different story from back in the old days when, you know, you couldn't, didn't, I didn't get that much respect, <laughs> you know. What do you mean? What, how, did, uh, how did that change for you? What, in what ways were they showing their respect? Well, they were showing it in more obvious ways, you know. They were always guys that never had uh, said anything to me before. was now, you know, oh, my buddy here, you know, shaking my hand, you know. You know, you want a drink or something, <laughs> you know. Good stuff like that. So I was getting a lot of recognition. That, that felt good, too. But like I say, sometimes, you know, it's for the wrong thing. You know, you get all this good recognition for the wrong thing. Did you ever wonder what um, was was going to happen to the guns? I mean, did you really believe that the drug dealers wouldn't use them or would only use them for their own protection? Did you at any time wonder if they were involved in, you know, maybe more serious criminal activity, something that would harm people? Yes, I did begin to wonder and think that they would probably be, you know, harming someone with them because some of these guys didn't look as nice as they should look, so I figured that, you know, even though they were just dealing drugs, they might be more than just drug dealers. And I wanted to get out of the rat racket for sure. But... I, okay, I couldn't just see. I wanted to tell them that I had lost my gun card or got threaded or anything, you know. But I ended up not not being a, a good liar, I guess. <laughs> Did you actually try? Well, no, I didn't. I didn't. Did you ever hear about um, the guns being used in crimes? Yes, I did. A few were used in crimes I heard of. The ones, the shootings that I did know about always happened because someone was trying to either stick up one of the dealers and then they ended up getting shot themselves. That's all. It wasn't too much other than that, you know. Uh, But, well, there was once a, a wild shooting spree that happened but I think a couple of people did get shot, but no one got killed. I never knew about any murder exactly. But although the, those federal guys did tell me it was a murder on one of them, but I, I know it was like out of state or something. So were you living off of the income that uh, you were making from buying the guns? Yes, I was living off of that and probably a little public aid, general assistance. So how much would you estimate that you made in the two years that you were buying the guns? No, I never really gave that a, a good thought. But I know it would have been somewhere in the four or $5,000 range. So it wasn't, I mean, you weren't getting rich off of this? No way. <laughs> it was just something to keep my head above water.
This straw purchaser was interviewed by Tory Marlin. Only 14 of his guns, out of over 60, had been recovered by police. I'm a pistol-packing papa And when I walk down the street You can hear those mamas shouting Don't turn your gun on me Now, girls, I'm just a good guy And I'm going to have my fun And if you don't want to smell my smoke Don't monkey with my gun Well, our program was produced today by Julie Snyder and myself with Elise Spiegel and Nancy Updike. Senior editor for this show, Paul Tuff. Contributing editors, Jack Hitt, Margie Rocklin, and Consul Yuri Saraval. Production help from Alex Bloomberg, Rachel Howard, Laura Doggett, and Brian Reed. Special thanks to the Help Network at Children's Memorial Hospital, Dan Katowski at the Illinois Council Against Handgun Violence, Jennifer Kava at the National Rifle Association, and Mr. Steve Cushing. Today's uh, program was first broadcast in 1997. Mike Robbins, the police officer who you heard in Act 4 of the show, died a decade after that first broadcast. He died in 2008. He was 57. He volunteered with kids in Chicago and remained a vocal activist for stricter handgun control until his death. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia. Who describes the first time he heard public radio this way. The sound it made was as big as God. It kicked little me back to the ground like a bully, like a foe. It hurt. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. When you hear my pistol popping, you better hide yourself someplace. Cause I ain't made for stopping. And I come from a shooting race. The old lady, old lady, old lady. PRI Public Radio International.